0: Morning. Morning. Um, If you're new here and you don't know me, my name is Pastor Mike. I'm one of the the pastors here. Um, Like Kyle said at the beginning, we're going through uh, this series called The Thread. One. Uh, sermon for every book of the Bible, and we're in the middle of the historical books. How are you guys doing? <laughs> yeah, yeah. sometimes it's easy to get lost in those. Um, in just a minute, we're going to play an overview video like we do every week. That'll give you some of the the context. Hopefully, you've been able to read some of 2 Kings uh, this week uh, in preparation for this, but first, let me pray for us and, and ask God to be with us. Father, thank you for being a God who speaks. We don't have to guess about who you are or how you feel toward us, um, how you are in control and governing everything in this world, you've given us a book, a story that we get to be a part of. So as we open this book and look at Second Kings 4, I pray that you would be with us, that you would open our eyes and soften our hearts so that we can see more and more of Jesus this morning. It's in his name that we pray, amen, amen. All right, let's check out this video.
1: The second book of Kings was originally a part of 1 Kings, written by the prophet Jeremiah between 560 and 540 BC. It tells the story of the collapse of Israel's kingdom. The nation of Israel is split into two rival kingdoms, Israel to the north and Judah in the south. Of the 20 kings in the north, not a single one lives according to God's covenant or leads their people to worship God alone. In the southern kingdom of Judah, only eight kings are counted as righteous. God sends prophets to speak on his behalf, calling out injustice and idolatry and inviting the two kingdoms to repent and turn back to God. Despite the warnings of the prophets, the northern kings continue in their wicked ways, beginning a string of political assassinations and coups. God allows Israel to face the consequences of their idolatry and the Northern Kingdom is ultimately destroyed by the hands of Assyria. The Southern Kingdom has kings who listen and repent, but the prophets declare that their sins have earned God's righteous judgment. The Babylonian army invades Judah, destroys the temple, and carries off the people and all their wealth. The line of David enters a period of exile without the temple, without a land to call home, and with no apparent certainty that God's promises Will ever come to pass.
0: So it, it feels like it's been uh, uh, a shorter time than this, but uh, the, the Russian invasion of Ukraine has only been about six weeks uh, right now. And as we've all been, been watching, I'm sure a lot of thoughts have been going on in our heads. Um, it's been heavy. It's been heavy to follow if you've been following the news. One thing that's been going on in in my mind that I've been thinking about is the difference between the history textbooks that will record these events and then the stories and the, the oral histories Um, that are telling these sort of personal accounts of what's going on. it's, It's one thing if you're reading the newspaper and you get all the facts and the dates and the troop movements and the political negotiations that'll all be in the history books, but then with a good oral history or a good interviewer, you're reading stories from people who are actually there, giving you All of these different accounts from many different perspectives. It it brings us closer to the actual real events of people when we hear, what is the average person experiencing? This past week... Uh, I read an interview by uh, someone uh, in Mariupol who said that this time of year was always her favorite because in the springtime, you could smell flowers just everywhere you went in the city. It smelled so fresh. But now, after it's been bombed and shelled and there's devastation everywhere, this person said this really poignant line. Uh, she said, I miss the way my city smelled. Uh, and that just hit me uh, more than reading about what's what's going on with the the facts of these armies in conflict. You only get that level of detail and emotion by hearing people's stories. And as we've been walking through the historical books of the Bible, you know, mostly we've been looking at the high-level story of Israel, the the politics of kingship and the, the covenant with David and the division of the kingdom. In other words, we've been looking at the history textbook, the key facts and the important people, and that is really important to understand what's going on in the history. But what about the regular folk? When kings are righteous, when kings are wicked, and they're coming and going like we saw in the video, what's going on for the people like you and me? And this question might have come up for you if you've been reading along in First and Second Kings, because there are many places where the author will say something like, uh, so-and-so king was wicked, and he led all the people from following the Lord. And you're like, wait, all the people? Like, wasn't there anybody who was faithful to God? And of course, these sorts of statements are, are generalizations, uh, but they do warn us that, in general, people are more easily persuaded than we might think. In in Israel's history, the kings set the tone and the pattern for the people. So if you have a good king, they're probably going to lead people closer to God. If you have a bad king, the opposite will happen. And what it does is it warns us that we too can be easily swayed by the times, by, by the prevailing winds of whether it's easy and convenient to follow God or whether it's not. We are all influenced maybe more than we realize by, by people who will lead us into flourishing, lead us into corruption. And what these stories also do is they draw attention to the few people who were faithful and strong in their faith amidst all this instability. So, we're going to be looking at one of these stories. If you have a Bible, you can turn to Second Kings chapter 4. Um, It'll also be up on the screen if if you don't have a Bible, or there should be one underneath the seat in front of you. While you're turning there, let me just give you some background on the the high-level history of Israel at this point. So in the previous chapter of 2 Kings, there are three kings, Judah, Israel, and Edom, and they all make an alliance together to attack another nation, Moab, a neighboring nation. So during this time, you have armies crossing this region at various points. It's a bit of chaos, there's a global unrest. There's moral unrest because it's kind of awkward. One of these kings is sort of kind of good and the other two are sort of kind of bad. And in the center of all this, you have a prophet, Elisha. Like I said in the video, in the Old Testament, prophets were raised up to call out evil and injustice and to be this voice that's reminding everybody that you need to follow God so, in chapter 3, we see Elisha the prophet at the high level counseling all these kings when they're coming to him for advice, but then suddenly the story pivots in chapter 4, and it zooms in to a bunch of small human interest stories that show us what, what life was actually like at this time, the personal joys and hardships and sorrows and tragedies that everyday human beings like us experience. And then we get to watch Elisha, this this prophet of God, step into these situations and work miracles and bring hope. So, as we're reading along in this story, I want you to keep this big question in the back of your mind How should God's people live amidst global unrest and personal hardship? How should we live? So we're going to be walking through just one story. It's in verses 8 through 37. It is a fairly long story, but it's, it's fascinating, and it's, it's been deeply moving for me as I've been studying it this week. So I'm going to break it down into three different scenes, and I'll give some explanations as we go along and read it, and then we'll conclude by coming back to that big question and applying it to us. So that's the game plan. Let's go ahead and jump into this story in 2 Kings chapter 4, the first scene I've called Generosity. So, we're starting in verse 8 here. One day, Elisha went to Shunem, where a wealthy woman lived, who urged him to eat some food. So, whenever he passed that way, he would turn in there to eat food. And she said to her husband, Behold, I know that this is a holy man of God who is continually passing our way. Let us make a small room on the roof with walls and put there for him a bed, a table, a chair, and a lamp so that whenever he comes to us, he can go in there. So here we encounter an unnamed, prominent, wealthy woman who uses her wealth generously. Uh, Being a prophet, just like being in ministry today, is is not a lucrative vocation. At least it shouldn't be if you're doing it right. Uh, And so this woman has an immense amount of respect and honor for Elisha as a spokesperson for God, and and so she persuades her husband to make an Airbnb for Elisha, essentially, uh, that he can use whenever he wants. He can stop in there on his traveling, and it's not just a bare room where he can kind of sleep on the ground. It's fully furnished. It's a comfortable place to rest. Now, I should point out that throughout the Scriptures, there are strong, repeated warnings about the spiritual dangers of wealth that all of us in the West should really take heed of. Money tempts us to corruption. It tempts us to injustice, to a sense of self-sufficiency. And yet, the story of this Shunammite woman shows us that it is not a sin to be wealthy any more than it is a sin to be poor. What matters to God is not how much money is in your bank account, but about how you use what he has given you to bless others with generosity and hospitality, making others' lives easier by sacrificing for them, caring for their needs. So this woman is an amazing model of hospitality. And already we're sensing in this time of upheaval and chaos, armies fighting everywhere, kings good and bad… Here is someone who is a, one of the faithful remnant who still follows God. So, Elisha develops a friendship with this wealthy woman, and he decides to reciprocate their generosity. Verse 11, one day he came there, and he turned into the chamber and rested there. And he said to Gehazi, his servant, call the Shunammite. When he had called her, she stood before him, and he said to him, say now to her. Now, let me pause for a second and explain why. Why is he talking to the woman through his servant? It's not because he thinks he's better than her. He's trying to be this, like, aloof guru. You know, say to the woman, that sort of thing. What's probably happening is that her preference was to honor him as a prophet, and so he's being kind by matching her level of formality. Uh, for example, uh, in, as a pastor, I really like it when people just call me Mike. That's my name. Uh, but occasionally, I encounter people, usually from an older generation, who, out of you know, respect, want to call me pastor. That's okay. It's, it's their level of what they think is appropriate for familiarity and, and formality, and so Elisha kind of goes with that. And keep an eye on this dynamic, this, this level of formality as we read the story, because it'll play a big role later. Verse 13, and he said to him, say now to her, see, you have taken all this trouble for us. What is to be done for you? Would, would you have a word spoken on your behalf to the king or to the commander of the army? Elisha's saying, with all these wars and, and unrest going on, do you need protection? Like, I know some important people who could help you out. And she answered, I dwell among my own people. In other words, I, I'm surrounded by family. I have everything that I need. She's content, in other words. She walks away, but Elisha still wants to bless her, and so he talks to his servant Gehazi, and he said, what then is to be done for her? And Gehazi answered, well, she has no son, and her husband is old. I think that's kind of a funny line, but (laughs) what it's doing is it's highlighting how in biblical times being childless caused somewhat of a social stigma Against you, But it also meant that if this, elderly woman's, if this woman's elderly husband died, she would have no child to provide for her in her old age. Um, verse 15, he said, call her. And when he had called her, she stood in the doorway. Again, formal. And he said, at this season, about this time next year, you shall embrace a son. That's an amazing promise. But watch her response. And she said, No, my Lord, O man of God, do not lie to your servant. The woman's immediate reply is not of joy, but of suspicion. And it reveals that this is a sore area for us. It's very likely that she and her husband struggled with infertility for years, like many of us in this room. And if you've been there, you know that one of the hardest things is the cycle of disappointment, the roller coaster of, of excitement and hope followed by utter sorrow and hopelessness. And so it makes perfect sense for this woman to say honestly, I didn't ask for this. Please don't get my hopes up. I'm fine. Don't lie to me. I don't know if I can take another heartbreak. Verse 17, but the woman conceived. She bore a son about that time the following spring, as Elisha had said to her. Now, God doesn't always give a child to the childless. We, we know this. And that raises a lot of difficult questions for our mind, good questions, but, but we don't have time to address all of them this morning. But let me just say that if you are here or if you're watching online and you are struggling because of infertility, you are not alone. And we want to come alongside you and be with you in that struggle. Um, There is no shame. I mean, as I look out at this church family this morning, I see many faces where I know parts of your story, and I know that you have walked that road. And so reach out if you'd like to talk to somebody about it. I do want to share the observation of one commentator. Um, He pointed out that unlike the stories of Abraham of Hannah, of Zechariah, and Elizabeth, God does not help this family conceive in order to, quote, fulfill some grand redemptive historical function, but simply to make this woman happy. So in this first scene, we see the generosity of this Shunammite woman towards the needy, and we also see the generosity of God toward ordinary faithful people. So let's see how the story takes a turn in the second scene, which I've called disaster. Verse 18, when the child had grown, he went out one day to his father among the reapers. And he said to his father, oh, my head, my head. The father said to his servant, carry him to his mother. And when he had lifted him and brought him to his mother, the child sat on her lap till noon, and then he died. This is just the worst kind of tragedy a miracle child, so beloved by his parents, has a stroke or an aneurysm or something that causes his life to be cut way too short. Death is one of the most stark reminders that something is terribly wrong in this world. Have you ever felt that way? at a funeral or something, or or somebody close to you has, has passed away, and you feel, this is all wrong. This isn't the way the story is supposed to go. So how will this grieving mother react? Verse 21. And she went up and laid him on the bed of the man of God and shut the door behind him and went out. Then she called to her husband and said, Send me one of the servants and one of the donkeys, that I may quickly go to the man of God and come back again. And he said, why will you go to him today? It is neither new moon nor Sabbath. In other words, you're only supposed to go to the prophet on certain holy days. She said, all is well. In the Hebrew, it's just one word, shalom. Verse 24, then she saddled the donkey and she said to her servant, Urge the animal on, do not slacken the pace for me unless I tell you. So she, so she set out and came to the man of God at Mount Carmel. When the man of God saw her coming, he said to Gehazi, his servant, Look, there's the Shunammite. Run at once to meet her and say to her, is all well with you? Is all well with your husband? Is all well with your child? And again she answers, Shalom. So immediately after her son dies in her arms, this woman grabs her purse, she gets in the car, she drives over the speed limit to go see Elisha. She only pauses twice to say to her husband and and Gehazi, it'll be okay. And you have to wonder whether she really believes that at this point, or whether she's just sort of saying it automatically when somebody asks you how you're doing, and you're not doing well at all, but you just say, I'm fine, it'll be okay. Verse 27, and when she came to the mountain to the man of God, she caught hold of his feet. This is a posture of desperation. Just imagine running to someone, falling down at their feet. The formality is gone now in the wake of this tragedy. She is utterly vulnerable. Her composure is finally breaking down. And Gehazi came to push her away, but the man of God said, Leave her alone. For she is in bitter distress, and the Lord has hidden it from me and has not told me. Do you remember a little while back when Kyle preached on Ruth and we read about Naomi changing her name to Mara, which means bitter? That's the word here. Her soul is Mara, her soul is in the worst sort of pain. And Elisha seems surprised. We actually have to admire his humility in admitting that he didn't see this coming. It would have been easy for Elisha to claim to be all-knowing. Ah, uh, yes, yes, I understand what's going on. But he doesn't do that. He, he was so attuned to God, but in this moment he says, I don't know why, but God didn't tell me about whatever is causing this distress. Verse 28, look closely at this line. Then she said, did I ask my Lord for a son? Did I not say, do not deceive me? This is the most heartbreaking line for me. Elisha, what have you done to me? You gave me hope. God gave me a child and then he took him away from me. There's a famous line by the poet Alfred Lord Tennyson, "'Tis better to have loved and lost than never to have loved at all, but that is not how the Shunammite woman sees it. One scholar said that even putting her son on Elisha's bed, like in that room that she had made for him, may have been an act of bitterness. Like, Like she's giving Elisha's gift back to him. Take it. God took it away from me. The woman doesn't say exactly what happened, but Elisha intuits it. He said to Gehazi, Tie up your garment and take my staff in your hand and go. If you meet anyone, do not greet him. And if anyone greets you, do not reply. And lay my staff on the face of the child. Then the mother of the child said, As the Lord lives and as you yourself live, I will not leave you. So he arose and followed her. Gehazi went on ahead and laid... The staff on the face of the child, but there was no sound or sign of life. Therefore, he returned to meet him and told him, the child is not awakened. Now, it's it's difficult to know why Elisha sent Gehazi ahead with the staff, but it was most likely a pledge as though Elisha was saying, hey, it's going to take me some time to get there. The journey was probably 20 or 30 miles, but I will come and fix this. What I want us to observe from the second scene is how the Bible does not condemn this woman for her emotions, for her bitter distress. God is patient and compassionate with those who are grieving and suffering. And even amidst her pain, she still has faith. Did you notice her words in verse 30? As the Lord lives, and as you yourself live, I will not leave you. In other words, my son is dead but God is alive, and you, his prophet, are alive, so no matter what, I'm gonna stay close to the one who speaks to God. In the middle of this disaster, she voices her agony, and yet she's still clinging to God. Fix this, fix it. Now we get to the last scene, which I've called resurrection. Bit of a spoiler alert. Verse 32, when Elisha came into the house, he saw the child lying dead on his bed, so he went in and shut the door behind the two of them and prayed to the Lord. I wish I could have been a fly on the wall to hear Elisha's prayer. What do you pray in that situation? But before anything else, for he acts, he seeks the Lord's mercy and power. Verse 34, this is where it gets strange. And he went up and lay on the child, putting his mouth on his mouth, his eyes on his eyes, his hands on his hands. And as he stretched himself upon him, the flesh of the child became warm. Okay, we've got to pause there because that just took a turn. Like, whoa, what is going on? This is such a, a strange and somewhat disturbing image. Like this grown man is lying on a corpse and lining up his body exactly to match it. So, a couple of things to help us understand what's going on. First of all, Elisha is just following the example of Elijah, his mentor. And I'm actually surprised so far that I haven't mixed up their names. Uh, Elisha is a character in our story. Elijah was his mentor. In First Kings 17, Elijah raises a widow's son in almost this exact same way. And so Elisha is probably thinking, okay, well, God used my teacher to raise somebody from the dead in this way, so I I guess I'll do the same thing. A bit of cultural background can also help us. Um, In in Mesopotamian literature around this era, it was believed that demons possess people. And it it was believed that the way that they possess people is by lining up their body to a human's, mouth to mouth, eyes to eyes, and then they would sort of inhabit human beings. And so it was just a common way in the time of describing one's life, force, or vitality being transferred to another person. It's a little bit strange, but that's a cultural background. This was a common image of like one's person's soul or life passing into another. And so that's why some commentators think that what's going on here is Elisha is mirroring the corpse's body with his own as a dramatic, visceral way of reenacting death. As though he was praying to God, let his lifeless body become like my lively body. May my life become his life, and if necessary, may his death Become my death. There's a transfer going on here that Elisha is reenacting. And even though it is strange, we can start to get into that mindset of, okay, I, I begin to understand why he's doing that. But it's okay if you're still like, yeah, I'm not really sure about that. Verse 35, does it work? Not automatically. Then he got up again and walked once back and forth in the house and went up and stretched himself upon him. The child sneezed seven times, and the child opened his eyes. Now, it's an interesting detail that in this miracle, the, bo- the boy isn't resurrected instantly. It's, it's a gradual process. But nevertheless, God uses Elisha to raise this child from the dead. And if you've been in the church for a long while, the statement I just said or the the thing we just read just kind of washes over you and doesn't really impact you or hit you. Oh, yeah, he raised him from the dead. Resurrection language is is common in the church, understandably. Um, It's Easter week. We're talking about the resurrection of Jesus. It's what we talk about every, every week. And yet, I just want it to hit you, this week at least, how incredible resurrection is, how much awe you would have if you were actually there. Have, you, have any of you been to an open casket funeral, and, and you go up and you get up very close to the corpse? There is an awful stillness in death if you've been around a dead body. Like, they are they're lying too still there. They should be m- moving, but they're, they're not, and there's an awful finality to it. And the body lives again. Just let that hit you. Resurrection. We, if you are a Christian, you believe that dead bodies can become alive again. <laughs> it's incredible. And if it sounds incredible to you, you're, you're not a Christian, it is incredible. It's wild. It's the most, it's the most ridiculous and, I think, beautiful part of our faith We'll get more to that in a moment. Let's finish this story in verse 36. After the boy opens his eyes and sneezes seven times, I don't know what's up with the sneezing, uh, he summoned Gehazi and said, Call this Shunammite. So he called her. And when she came to him, he said, Pick up your son. She came and fell at his feet again. Similar posture as she had before, bowing to the ground, but this time, is she is speechless. All she can do is bow down. And then she goes out and lives the rest of her life with her son restored to her. We never hear about this woman again. We do, however, have a story about Jesus in which he goes to a town called Nain, which is just a few miles from Shunem. So, he's in that area. I'll read this story in in Luke 7, because I think they have relevance for us this morning. Uh, In Luke chapter 7, soon afterward, Jesus went to a town called Nain. Again, it's just a couple of miles from Shunem. And his disciples and a great crowd went with him. As he drew near to the gate of the town, behold, a man who had died was being carried out, the only son of his mother. And she was a widow And a considerable crowd from the town was with her. And when the Lord saw her, he had compassion on her and said to her, do not weep. Then he came up and touched the bier, and the bearer stood still. And he said, young man, I say to you, arise. And the dead man stand up and began to speak. And Jesus gave him to his mother. Fear seized them all, and they glorified God, saying, A great prophet has risen among us, and God has visited his people. And this report about him spread throughout the whole of Judea and all the surrounding country. Centuries after Elisha and the unnamed Shunammite woman, a man who claimed to be God came to the same region and finds a grieving mother with her only son. He feels compassion. And so he simply speaks. I'm, I'm kind of thankful that he didn't have to stretch his, his body over the boy. Um, he just speaks. He speaks a word. Doesn't even touch the body. And the dead son rose. A little while later, while he's just standing in front of the grave of his friend Lazarus, Jesus said, I am the resurrection and the life. Whoever believes in me, though he die, yet shall he live. And everyone who lives and believes in me shall never die. You see, God does care about life and death on this earth. He grieves death. He cries with us. He weeps. And he is the source of life. But the reason Jesus became a human, the reason why he lived a perfect life, why he died a brutal death on the cross, the reason why he rose from death to rule in heaven was not to resurrect every corpse in this world. The reason he rose from the dead was to offer eternal life to anyone who wants it, to resurrect dead hearts and to defeat the power of death. John says, by this we know love, that he laid down his life for us. In other words, on the cross, Jesus was looking at you and saying, let your life, lifeless body become like my lively body may my life become your life and if necessary may your death become my death in second timothy 1:10 paul says that jesus abolished death and we go how paul because i just lost a, a grandparent i just lost a spouse I just lost a friend. I lost a child. How did Jesus abolish death? The author of Hebrews answers that Jesus, through death, destroyed the one who has the power of death, that is, the devil. So right now, death has a sting. It has victory. It claims every one of us even the boys whom Elisha and Jesus rose from the dead, they continued to die again. Lazarus died again. Their resurrections were just a foretaste, just an appetizer in us to say it could be different. By the power of God, it could be different than this. It creates in us a hope and a longing for the day when we are done with funerals, when there will be no more goodbyes. And right now, you do not have to fear death because it does not have the last word. The last word will come when Jesus returns and finally gets rid of death once and for all. When, when we who believe in Jesus' promises are going to stomp on the grave of death and we're going to say, ha, ha. Death, where's your victory? Where's your sting? Come at me, death. Jesus has defeated you. On that day, Jesus will wipe every tear from their eyes. Death shall be no more. Neither shall there be mourning, nor crying, nor pain anymore. And Jesus will say, I am making all things new. Amen? Amen. But if you find yourself this morning in a place where you are fearing death, if, if this story in 2 Kings just terrifies you, if the thought of losing your child, the thought of losing your own life, of losing someone close to you, is just the worst possible event that could ever happen to you, then let me gently plead with you to look at how Jesus viewed death. It is an enemy. It's worth weeping over. But for those who have entrusted their lives and their souls to God, then eternal life is yours and death is disarmed. It is a broken enemy without power. I am the resurrection and the life. Whoever believes in me, though he die, yet shall he live. Everyone who lives and believes in me shall never die. I don't mean to preach Kyle's Easter sermon uh, a week early, but it is, I I think it's a strange um, providence of God that just by the way that the Thread series worked out, that we get two resurrection messages at the beginning and at the end of Holy Week, of Easter week. I think the story of Elisha and the Shunammite woman should inspire us to have the same sort of faith that they had, uh, a faith in the God who lives, the God of life. Our big question was, was how should we live amidst global unrest and personal hardship? And I think one way to answer that question is to look at the Shunammite woman. She's a reminder for us that, that even when you feel overwhelmed by the evil and suffering and mess of this life, that there are still people being faithful. There are still beautiful stories of hope, and goodness and kindness, I see this as I look out at you, as I talk to you guys, as I hear your stories, there are beautiful things going on in this world, just the first fruits of resurrection life in us being played out with one another. On the high level global scale, it's, it's very, very easy to be discouraged by headlines and bad news. But as soon as you get close and you look around at the stories of ordinary people, what you will see so often is light that lifts up our spirits and encourages us. So I think this uh, Shunammite woman is held up as a a model for us, an example of godly generosity, of honesty in her grief and suffering, and of steadfast hope in the midst of death. I'm going to close by just taking each one of those and uh, applying it to us. So first, godly generosity. This week, Consider how you can use your, your wealth and your resources, but also your time, your abilities, your unique talents to bless those around you. And if you don't see anyone in need, then go out and find them or open your eyes. What would it look like? So what would it look like if every person in this church was as hospitable and as thoughtful as the Shunammite woman? That would be... Incredible. I think it would be an incredible witness to our neighbors in the Duluth. Uh, the church has a reputation nowadays of being a, a country club where the rich go and, and sort of ignore those in need. And there is some painful truth to that. This isn't a new problem. Jesus accused uh, the Pharisees and he implored his disciples to live generous lives. But how does Jesus say that those outside the church will know that we are followers of Jesus? if we have love for one another. So here's the win. If if somebody who is not a part of our church looks at the way we are living, the way we use our resources to bless one another, and if they say, "Hey, I don't know if I believe everything that they say about Jesus at Rock Hill, but man, they help people. They are generous." That's the win, I think. Second, honesty in grief and suffering. There is a temptation for some of us, especially if you have a tendency to like to manage your image, to put on a mask, to appear strong. There's a tendency to hide from others when we are going through difficult things. I'm fine. No, I'm good. But when we, like the Shunammite woman, are in bitter distress, then the community of God's people should be the first place we go. We, we are called by God to rejoice with those who rejoice, to weep with those who weep. So we celebrate when a baby is born, when a couple gets married, when a friend gets a new job, and we weep with those we weep. We hug the guy who lost his job. We write a note to a friend who's in deep depression. We cry alongside the parent who lost a child. And together, we bring our tears to God. We're told in the Psalms, that he collects all of our tears, he doesn't ignore them. He collects them in a bottle and remembers them. He invites these emotions, and he promises us to be with us in them. Finally, steadfast hope in the midst of death. Paul says that in first, he says in First Corinthians fifteen that if Jesus didn't rise from the dead, if if this week, if if this uh, Easter Sunday is a sham. If his words about being the resurrection and the life are false, then we are people who are most to be pitied. It's wild, Paul. But because Jesus is alive, and because he promises eternal life to any and all who believe, then we are resurrection people. What is a Christian? We are people who die with Christ and are risen with Christ. Baptism is the picture of that. So every Sunday is Easter Sunday, like Kyle said, and we can offer a message of gospel, of good news to the world saying, listen, death is defeated and Jesus is coming back. So repent and believe in him and you will have eternal life. So, come back next week. This week is, is a whole celebration of resurrection. But remember this you are resurrection people. How does that change the way you interact with death? How does that change the way that you have hope, even in the midst of distress? Let me pray for God's help with that. God, you are the God of life, and you weep when we weep. You cry to see pain to see hurts, to see heartache, to see tragedy, to see people taken away before their time. And that, Jesus, is why you lived among us, why you died on a cross to defeat death, why you rose from the dead. Thank you, Jesus, for being on the throne this morning. But Jesus, would you come back soon? We long for it. We want you to come back, Jesus, and make all things new. In the meantime, as we live here and now, would you help us to be resurrection people and to offer the hope of good news, the hope of eternal life to everyone we see. It's in your good, beautiful name we pray. Amen.